Welcome to another edition of Hit the Lights. Today I have a very special guest with me, uh, Sparky Ninja himself, David Watts. How are you doing? I'm fine, Gary. How are we doing over here? Hit the lights. Yeah, not too bad, thank you. Obviously hitting the ground running and, and getting some podcasts out there and, you know, following trailblazers such as yourself over at E5. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned E5 because I've I've got my own podcast as well, and I'm kind of like yeah, and Sparky Ninja as well. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, pick, I'm picking that one back up because I've, I've this I've recorded about seven or eight podcasts this week uh, for E5 and for a couple of others, and I did one for myself. And you kind of realise, you know, when you've got your own podcast, you need to put some onto that platform. But my my one is just training stuff and nonsense. I'm probably going to do a couple in the next couple of days. I'll probably get my dad on. Because we always, whenever we talk, you know, we can we can meet in a pub, we can meet at a birthday party, and we'll be our, these lonely two, uh, this lonely twosome in the corner talking about BS seven six M one, and the family will go, "Don't go over there, they're talking electrics." Yeah. <laughs> so I'll probably get him on the next one. Yeah, no, that's uh, yeah, we'll probably come on to your dad a bit later, hopefully. Um, probably. so probably a good place to start then. There might be some who already know it, but <laughs> take us back to, you know, the fifteen, sixteen-year-old David and. Why did you choose the electrical industry and maybe take us through a bit of your own training journey? Well, I don't know if I chose the electrical industry. The electrical industry probably chose me. Um, As I say, my dad's an electrician. My granddad's an electrician. There was a firm, a a family firm. It was called G&J Watts Electrical. And um, the the G was George. The J was Jones. My nan and granddad. And they had the contract at Ascot Racecourse. And they had that for nearly 30 years, I believe. So when I was growing up, my dad was working for the family firm. And whenever I'd spend time with him at the weekends, we'd go in the van and we'd go from one site to the next. So I'd I'd see cables, I'd smell brick dust as I was growing up. Um, So when it came to being at school, I was very good at school. I enjoyed school. I loved to study and I did very well. Got all A's, a couple of B's um, to the point where I mean, it was really great for me because I was probably one of only two two or three lads in the group and it was just 30 odd girls so you know it was quite quite a perk I thought but I got to the end of it and so I was talking to my mum about what you need and you know what to do and they said what do you want to do for the rest of your life I was like well, I don't know so I started A levels I started A levels and I did a couple of things I think I did law and I did business and I did job free and I, I was about three or four weeks in but um the study was fine but financially things were a bit struggling at home because my you know my mum and dad separated it was just my mum and we were it was at that point where things were quite bad we were going to tesco's at 7 30 at night because at 7 30 at night is when they reduce all of the bread mm. and we'd go and get that and we'd walk it it's about a two mile walk and we put it in the freezer so times were quite tough so i was in this position where i was trying to learn not knowing what the path was but every night i'd be going down to tesco's for the 7 30 reduction would be i'd be one of those people standing around all the other people waiting behind that woman with a little price gun for yeah. her to put the, the you know put the the donuts down to 10p or the bread down to 7p and we would be grabbing it and then we'd be throwing it in the freezer and it was because my mum had you know no income we were just she was just some benefits and we we're in a you know we, our house was repossessed we were kicked out of the home and we ended up being put into a council flat um but you know my my learning my studies always were good and she always made sure i had everything that i needed but when they came to ask me that question what do you want to do for the rest of your life now's that decision i didn't know um, but my dad said, well, look, if you come to do the trade, if you come to do the apprenticeship, you'll have a skill and you can leave it afterwards. But once you've obtained a skill, you'll always be able to work. 
you always have work and fundamentally you're going to start you're going to carry on learning but you're going to start earning so I was like oh okay so he threw that my mum my hated that because she wanted me to go to university and all these things because um, she knew that I could actually go quite far academically but I just needed to get some money into our situation so I I did that um, I jumped on uh, I think I was paid 65 pound a week uh, which you know back then um, you know well, still wasn't a lot of money but for us in that situation it was a lot of money um, so I did the um, 2360 part one part two so that's 1998 I started so I'd have finished in 2001 again I found the study fairly fairly okay I, I studied it well um, I did okay in the exams I did the 2391 straight afterwards uh, and I carried on working with the family firm and um, we were we we're NIC approved at the time so I was put into the position of being the QS of the company this is all before part p yeah, before the whole, you know, this is back when the NIC wasn't a requirement in people's eyes. It was a membership that you could obtain to show customers that you actually want to take that extra step and gain that third party identity to show that you're, you know, you're doing a bit of due diligence on your own business at that point. Um, and I, you know, so I was, I was always being challenged technically, and I enjoyed that. I've always enjoyed that, and. Um, it got to the point, though, where I wasn't getting enough of that at the family firm. So I left the family firm in 2002 or three, and I went to work at a local authority um, as a electrician, basically the local council. And um, I was put onto the voids team. This is, how I got in, this is how I started to work in social housing. So I know quite a bit about social housing, and I talk a lot about that with, with the likes of Ryan Dempsey and Eve because he's just from social housing primarily as well. So I was on the voids team, testing empty properties and updating empty properties. Uh, the problem with that job, and I didn't really realize it at the time, is it was too cushy. Because uh, this, this, was, this wasn't, this wasn't um, time-stamped. Vehicles weren't tracked. So a lot of the lads I was working with or working around would come in and they'd go off. They'd do some time on the ticket and then they'd be done by lunch. And if you wanted to work hard and apply yourself, you put in too many tickets and so you had to kind of relax and you, you know it was basically a job for people in there you know going towards retirement where they want to start taking their foot off the gas mm. but if you've just done an apprenticeship and you want to start actually going and grinding and doing some proper work it was the wrong place to go to because you really stand out if you apply yourself and so I didn't really fit um, I pushed for the QS role there just to keep myself busy mentally in the office but then I I decided to move on. So I went to a company in Wokingham that was actually a franchise. You know, the Mr. Electric. I do, yeah. Yep. Well, they, they had the they had the uh, the London West franchise. So I was the QS for them. But it meant every day I'd be going down the M4 corridor. So I started to experience London, mm. working in London, getting in and out of London, uh, realizing that you can have all the work on the whiteboard in the office. But fundamentally, when you're in London, you can only actually do a couple of those jobs because it takes you 40 minutes to drive two miles down the road yeah. so all that stuff i learned all that stuff and then um going full circle i ended up going back to the family firm at a period where ascot Racecourse, which is where we were based was going to be knocked down and rebuilt so they wanted some extra hands on deck to work with the the um to manage the companies that came in to build in the um the the wiring systems in the voids and the rising mains so we got involved with that project because you know Ascot had Ascot Authority, which is a new company had been set up at the time. 
um that's how they managed to get the money basically because otherwise it was the queen's what the queen's race course and it'd been the public purse and they couldn't have had that so they set up a company um but they needed to have this like this liaison to rely on and obviously you had huge companies i think it was a crown crown house was the the guy the company that mainly held the contract to run the work but they needed that communication to be good so they got us in to kind of help coordinate um so a couple, couple of years working there and at the same time my dad had started working at east Berkshire college and east Berkshire college he started doing training and he came to me one night and he said do you fancy coming to doing some training because the guy in charge of the workshop was off sick and i had no interest in doing that um but he said well, you know it's like 30 pound an hour for three hours and i was like well all right i popped in but without knowing what i was doing i actually tried to help the guys i went into the workshop and it was you know a normal typical practical workshop in the college the lads would arrive they'd make sure their ppe is on and then the trainer or the the technician would open the cupboard where all the tools are and they'd all get their board out on the desk and they'd start bashing away at the boards putting conduit on clipping and all that stuff using a sheet of practical exercises that they were given at the beginning of the year so the guy in the workshop would actually just open up give them the tools then he'd sit down at his computer playing solitaire or just moving things around he wouldn't get up and engage with them i wasn't told that so i got up and i engaged with these lads and i go up to them and say so why are you doing it that way why are you doing it this way and then when one guy had finished he'd just start talking i go and say well you've done this okay let's do something else and i pushed them further and i say well let's change this switching arrangement to intermediate two ways you know all this stuff and so without knowing i kind of pushed push their um push the training ahead from what they were experiencing and so they kind of after i then stopped they complained about the guy who was who i was covering and so the college pulled me in to finish the rest of the year and then over the summer they asked me to do level three training in the classroom and i was like oh that's um and at that point in time i was enjoying the fact that i was going to a place that had all these all these powerpoint presentations and these resources that i'd learned and most often, most of them I had forgotten, like a lot of electricians, you don't you don't maintain what you learn at college unless the college teaches you to keep maintaining that. Yeah. And the industry doesn't do enough to do that. The industry doesn't right now tell us or, you know, basically incentivize us to maintain our knowledge. So a lot of guys go to college, they learn what they need to learn, then they start to earn. And once they're earning, they'll keep what they need to know to do the earning. But a lot of the other stuff, which could be maybe 80 percent or so of what they learned at school. Uh, at college a lot of that will just drift off you know and yeah. so I had, to start, I had to start picking this back up again and I actually I found myself enjoying that so I got hungry to go back to the colleges um to teach but they put me they put me straight on level three which was a bit mean and they put me straight on inspection and testing which fortunately was an area that I pretty much loved since I did my 2391 so I was very knowledgeable at but that's um that's where I got to. Um, and I, so I worked in FE for a number of years. So I got to see how it worked. And I got to see, you know, where the problems were. And then I left them and I worked for a private company in London, which were then taken over by a company based in Stockton. And all, all at the same time, I'm getting married. I'm having my first son, my second son. So the mortgage costing in where we lived in Bracknell was hard because my wife wasn't going back to work. So we decided to uproot to the northeast for my, what might what was at the time just a plan of maybe 10 years and it still is a plan we might go back down but since we've moved up we've had two more boys so i've now got a family of four boys up here but fundamentally 
she doesn't have to work because we moved up and the mortgage is affordable. I couldn't, you know, we couldn't we couldn't live down south with the, the arrangements that we have. So um, so I moved up north and I, you know, carried on working with the same company. I left that company and I went freelance. And now I'm a freelance pain in the ass, basically, okay. in, the tra- in the trading industry. And that's me in a nutshell. Oh, I also do consulting. So typically then, what sort of clients do you tend to, to get to work with now you're freelance? Well, I've got um, a couple of companies that I subcontract to. So I subcontract to a number of training companies. Some um, some I can say, like Electrical Safety UK, because they're a great company. Some I can't say because it, when I subcontract to companies, it exposes to me how they work and how they behave. Sure. So I can't really say who they are for the sake of your own podcast. Mate. No, yeah, sure. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, there are many training companies where their approach to training is very poor. Um, and what so what happens? And with, with let's take a consulting example. I would go as a trainer to a company, a company that I've done some consulting work for and training work is the Two Sister Food Group. I can I can name them. They're a food manufacturer, but they own brands. Well, they did own Goodfellas Pizza. They've just sold that off. But they own like um, uh, Fox's Biscuits as well, and they provide all the chicken and and the white meat for majority of Tesco and Asda, etc. And they did do a lot of red meat, but they've just sold off their red meat. They're buying and selling a lot of different branches. And they bought Bernard Matthews not long ago. Um, so I delivered training for them. And then they have me arrive to do training. And then when I'm doing training, I'll go, well, we can do this. And you should have this kind of system of work. And then, then they'd, they'd latch on that. I'd talk to them about systems of work and working principles and working methods. And they'd ask me to come back. And the consultancy work kind of just evolved from me being a trainer telling them how things should work and then them asking me to come back and consult it which basically is them asking me to come back and execute the support for the training i've delivered mm. and that's kind of how the consulting happened and then what happens is the guys who work in that business would leave they go off so one went to samworth brothers one went over to Greencore, uh, one went over to getrag ford you know they go in different directions but they pull me over to them they pull me across so that's how the consultancy work kind of just spread. Um, so and, and then that obviously results in more training, because as a consultant, I'll go to that company and I'll go, well, you should really have training or you should have a rules procedure. You should have a system of work. You should have competency matrix. You should have all of this stuff. And they'll go, well, we haven't got any of this. OK, well, here's the rules procedure. Then I'll go, right, you now need to make sure that you deliver the rules to your team. And they'll go, well, how do we do that? Well, you train them. Who trains them? Oh well, I can train them, and yeah. it kind of, so you end up you end up training it as well. Um, I've do one one company I subcontract to right now. They've got a company that's from the US, a large manufacturer of medical equipment, but they work across the world, and so they created a rules standard for Europe, EMEA, so Europe, Middle East, Africa. Um, but because it's an American company, they forced the mention of arc flash an NFPA 70E, which isn't really relevant in parts of the Europe where it comes to the standard. Our approach is different. So I've had to get involved with intercontinental consultancy, uh, which is fun, um, but can be slow because communications can be a bit of a drift. Mm. Um, So, yeah, so the consulting has basically developed as a fragment of my training and then the consultancy sometimes moves across to another company which then creates more requirements of training so i'm kind of in that bubble yeah do you find do you find you get more fulfillment out of 
the training or, or the actual through the consultancy and the execution of what you've implemented in the training it's a bit of both it all depends really on the quality of the I don't want to say it's it's always down to the management of the company I work with but it's always down to the way they listen and they work with what's been delivered so I can go and I can deliver a course to a company and give them all 10 passes and I can go yeah I've done my job off I go but if at the end of the day that information isn't going to be used or it can't be progressed then it's a pointless exercise so I found that I find them both valuable but to me the best ones are the ones where actually people can then use the information because uh, again um an example i went over to dubai um i went over to dubai every year for three or four years and i delivered some training to a very large event center over there i'd go one year then the next year i'd arrive and i'd walk down the concourse and all these people would come up to me and shake my hand who to be honest i forgot i forgot their faces but they all knew mine I guess I stand out when I walk through there. But um, they all kind of shook my hand and all that. And I, and I was saying, how's it going? How's it going? Have you managed to carry on the work? And unfortunately, a lot of the times they didn't because the tech, you know, the test instruments that I went over there with, which I said to them, they're going to have to now source. And I gave them contacts to source them. They never bothered to buy them to then give them to the guys that I trained. Right. So what's the point of me going to deliver training if the company that actually asks me to do that then doesn't actually honour it with the production, you know, the provision of the instrumentation required to do the work? Um, and un unfortunately, this is what can happen. So a guy in charge of technical will get me in. But then when it comes to someone having to buy instrumentation, it goes to someone else's spreadsheet who's in charge of buying and they go, oh, that's too much. No or delay it for a year and that means you know and this is this is one of the problems in in businesses that i consult with sometimes there's a there's a difference there's a health and safety guy there's a technical guy and then there's a procurement guy and then there's a buying guy and sometimes when i get involved i need them all to work together and agree mm. and if one of them becomes a pain the whole the whole journey becomes broken and fractured do you find so, when you're, you're kind of delivering the training, you maybe stipulate to bring those people into that environment to yeah. learn as well? Most of the time when I deliver the training to, the, you know, the, they'll send the guys on the on the floor to the training first and I'll talk about it and I'll see. I'll see from them. And this is one of the most important things about training. It's very important with training that it's not a PowerPoint. Everyone look at the PowerPoint, shut up and listen and then pass. It's about the trainer looking at the people he's training and making sure that he can see that they are actually appreciating the information and they feel that they can actually use it. Now, when I see and I talk about things and I see that they start to squint or they start to shake their heads or they start to frown, I can then go, what's up? And they'll go, they won't pay for that or they won't let us do that. And it happens a lot. Mm. And I'll then feed off of that and then I'll start to say, right, well, are they going, when I start to say a next point, I go, well, will they let you do this? And immediately more people will start engaging, going, well, no, they won't. And this is where we will then get to the point where they'll say, management needs to be involved in this training. Management needs to come onto the training so they can actually see what the training is asking so they can then support that. That's one. That's what happened with the Two Sister Food Group. The The main the main owner of the business signed off the, the actual activity that these rules are going to be brought into the business. And the first thing we, we did when we developed the training is some people said, oh, health and safety might not support this. So he then stepped, he said, no, 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 right. You're going to go around and you're going to do 50 of these. And the room's going to be half factory engineering managers, half health and safety managers. So we'd have on the training a mixture 
of management and health and safety. And we did 50 of those courses before we started to train the actual engineers in the factories. Mm. Uh, and so that to me is one of the best examples I've seen. Yeah. You know, because they actually, you know, they we had to train the people up to then instruct and support the people below. If we just train the people at the bottom, the mechanisms above them will become an obstruction. Yeah. And so that is one of the, that is one of the issues. And again, many training companies, unfortunately, will just be, oh, we have a product. Would you like our product? They'll buy the product and then the manager don't have to get involved in the process because mm. that's the point that they want to sell their product. They go sell their product. I'm not like that. I'm, I'm going to say to a company, what do you want to achieve and how can you support that? And if I find out their infrastructure isn't quite prepared to support the end result of the training, I'll then go, well, that's not going to work until we change that structure. So often I'll go in and consult with them to look at their, you know, the way they do it. I mean, take, for example, they'll ask me to go and do safe isolation training. And in the safe isolation training, I'll mention in the safe isolation training that there's a policy that you can't go in on your own into a switch room. Mm. It's in the company. The company has a policy you can't go in unless there's two of you. Yeah. Or basically accompaniment because of the live work. Yeah. Live work requires accompaniment, and in the switch room, the, uh, the the incident energy is greatest. But then I'll look at the actual way the organization works, and procurement and other people have stripped the team down to a skeletal team, and you've now got engineers who are basically, it's a very broad term now, who are actually mechanically biased, but they've been asked to also do a bit of electrical, such as resetting breakers, Yeah. The problem is then what happens is you then have a shift where that guy, because he has some level of electrical authorization, ends up becoming on the on the matrix, the electrical representative for the operation of the business. But if that electrical representative of the operation of the business hasn't got authorization to go into a switch room, then you can't operate. And this is this this is what I end up getting involved with. So companies will ask me to deliver training to upskill people to carry out isolation training, switch control panel access training. But then I'll go and I'll say, well, ha what is your authorization procedures? Do you have every individual's competency mapped with authorizations to go against those competencies? And a lot of the times they haven't because they haven't thought that deep. And this is where I'll then emphasize how legislation works, how HSR 25, which is the Literacy at Work Regulation Guidance works, and how HSG 85, which is the Health and Safety Executive's Guidance on Safe Working Practices. It's all in there. Mm. If companies actually tear it to bits, they'll see that you have to have all those authorizations. But obviously, the end, the end line is companies want the guys with lower pay or lower skills to do the larger amount of work. They want them to be able to switch. They want them to be able to reset breakers. That's fine if your breaker is surface on an enclosure, but if you're going to have to open up a control panel, you now need to be able to assess the risk there if you're going to remove the protection the control panel provides. Yeah. You know? Um, so that's my biggest my biggest um, barrier, really, is sometimes they ask me to do one thing, but it becomes a bit more, uh, and then they realise that the other company they asked didn't say any of that nonsense. <laughs> and so they go and so they go that way but i've done you know i've done my bit and that's i mean i can't i can't start going around saying here you can competently do that now and leave because i've got some liability there if yeah. i say you're competent to do that not knowing anything about how he's going to be asked to do that in what conditions in what environment i must know that to then say that they can be competent to do that yeah no, um, no. anyway I've, I've 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 i'm sorry i've said a lot no, no, no. You've said a lot of good things. So, um, and so probably back on to 
maybe further education then um yeah have you considered returning to a college then or you you you're kind mm. of happy with with how you're delivering your content to companies now I've looked at further education. I've gone to some colleges. I went actually went up to one in Gateshead a couple of months ago because um, I want to work with colleges. I want to work in FE. I want to help people at that point of their education. The money's not great, but I can I can get around that. I think the bigger problem for me really is right now I'm on some kind of agenda where I can make more noise and try to make bigger improvements by being kind of like this pain in the ass to the trading sector going around and actually going from one college to the next if i if i work and if i go to one college one fe college and try to do my best there then that's great for their apprentices their trainees um but there are many others that are really and, and this is the problem because i've got because i've got i don't want to say i've got um any influence on anything but because i've got some kind of following in like Facebook I get a lot of people messaging me and they're basically opening up to me about their experiences at training because they can't do that to their own training provider you know people at training don't feel confident to speak to their own training provider because they feel that might conflict their own progress and fundamentally what they want to get is success they want to achieve so they'll come to me and we are we are We've, we, some things are happening in the E5 group and we've got some organizations that want to work with us and very you know some very valuable organizations and they've got a lot of value personally to me because I've been you know I've been using and learning from them for years and there are opportunities for me to go around colleges and look at colleges and try and help colleges and right now I think with the way the climate is the way the industry is positioned and the way training is I think I'm going to make bigger impact if I am speaking just for myself. So I'm not speaking for a training organization specifically. So I can basically be a lot more honest about things like city and guilds. Mm. You know, I could be a lot more open. I haven't got to worry about any of that. Um, I mean, I'll admit right now, I mean, I've, um, <clears throat> my, I work quite close with my dad because my dad runs a college. I'm not a director or anything of his company. He's, he, he runs it himself. It's his own thing. I've just given him a hand now and then. But because I have the same name as him as Watts, sitting guilds, and a couple of people have written to him about things I've been saying. They've been like, you know, so, you know, he's had a couple of letters because of that. And so any company I work for, you know, if I poke the bear, it might swipe back and if i'm working for a company that will put that at risk for them and i wouldn't want to do that i only want to you know i only want to put myself in harm's way um yeah. but yeah fundamentally training and I've, I've been talking about this openly on the podcast and in public to people and i'm not seeing anybody challenge me on it or mm. tell me i'm wrong there are some who will challenge me with regards to their own specific company and that's fine so i'll say you know there are issues with the fe blah 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 because i'm talking about the broad spectrum i've worked now with about seven or eight different colleges and i've seen these problems in about five no hang on six of them actually uh, but there are people who are very proud of their training, apparently very proud of their company, and they'll step up and they'll try to defend training. And I'm so, and I'll say to them, look, that's that's absolutely perfect. You know, when I say training is rubbish, I don't mean your provider's rubbish, your provider's rubbish, your provider's rubbish. But what I say when I say training is rubbish, I say the qualification structure, the assessment criteria that's dictated by the awarding body 
is the problem, not how a training company actually delivers it. There are many training companies that do deliver it very badly, but I can't say all training providers are rubbish because I know some are doing their utmost. And that's like I'm going to try to do with Sparky Ninja um, when I get the site launched and probably about the second or third phase is I want to have. I don't want I don't want Sparky Ninja to be a website where I say, right, you must use me for training. The first thing I'm going to be saying on that website is actually I recommend you go to a college for training. Yeah, I recommend it because I think it's better for an experience for a learner. Um, however, I know a lot of people don't have trust in lawyer local and they want to come to me. But the first thing I want to do is go around to some of these and figure out which ones are actually pulling the right strings and are challenging things. And I want to recommend train you know, colleges around the country, you know, but I can't I can't just say, oh, do you do a good job? Yes. You know, I'd have to actually go there and actually look at the resources, look at the staff, look at the internal quality assurance processes. And a large company has come into E5's uh, radar and also wants the same thing to happen, which is good because we've all got the same agendas here. And the agenda here is for training to start to be prepared. Now, we can't rewrite training. That's up to Ofqual. That's up to City and Guilds. But we can damn well try to improve it from the outside. Okay. No, and no, that's, 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 that's what we're doing. So, so with regards to FE, that's kind of, um, yeah, if I was to go to FE now, I'd be shelving a lot of this other potential work. But okay. who knows? In two or three years, maybe I will. In terms of, obviously, like you say, you've put a lot of content out there. I think one of them, which was actually useful for myself, was your 18th edition series, mm-hmm. which you put up for free. So thank <laughs> you for that. Um, mm. In terms of what made you put it up and why did you do it for free? Right. Um, <laughs> I, know, I, know, I know Paul Moon would love to answer this one. Um, I started. I started putting content up there to try to support electricians, to make electricians stand up. And so some of the original, the first content I put out there was showing the select committees and showing some of the issues with Part P and how that, you know, even the MPs are aware that this isn't a, this is a broken system. And the whole agenda of Spark and Ninja is to, again, I've got the level up as a hashtag and I've also got this other one I'm now doing called Mega, Make Electricians Great Again. I want electricians to go to where we were 15, 20 years ago, where we were the we were a respected trade. We were respected by others, but we also respected ourselves. With the 18th edition, I had access to the 18th edition with my with my um my my contacts. I had access to the draft early, and I looked at it. I looked at the draft pre comment. I looked at the draft post comment, and I knew straight away. And I can't say too much, but with our position and contacts in E5, we knew that some companies were actually gaining financially from people's positions on JPL. So what this meant is some companies had already done extensive work in the planning and preparation of 18th edition online training, right? So I said to myself, well, I should really create one as an alternative for every other training company to potentially use so that it was open to all, so that it was fair. Then I heard through the JIB that the JIB were going to introduce, because I've mentioned in my previous posts, the JIB gold card doesn't verify competence because it's great as a card to recognize an apprenticeship completion with their AM2. But all they really do is they reassess the qualification. So I could have a 2391 that I earned, that I gained back in 2001. I can get a gold card today and I can say, here's my 2391 that I did back in 2001 and they'll put that on my card. I could have done no testing since 2001. 
but my qualification is dated. So it doesn't maintain the competence. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. And I put this video out there. I had a lot of people kind of saying, oh, no, no, because, you know, there are a lot of people who are very much in favor of their gold card. And I completely respect that when you consider the Part P route into industry. But they don't do enough. And I had chats with the FIO and I had chats with GIB about this. And there was a strategy in place that I was informed about. And it turned out this strategy was actually go get your 18th edition and you're now verified as up to date in the eyes of GIB. And you're also now a registered electrician. And that was the other point. There was a requirement by the government for the competent person schemes to create a register of electricians like we had with Corgi that became gas safe, where the public could then have a database that the government points to with every individual electrician logged. The common person schemes changed that with the qualifying supervisor model to being a list of companies, not a list of individuals. Because mm. there were conflicts and there were other agendas there. Now, the GIB then stepped in and said, well, we'll have the registered electrician. So that's a list of registered electricians and that's competence. But the whole point of that is actually... You're saying the only thing that makes them competent now is that they've done an 18th edition. And I knew exactly that the 18th edition, unfortunately, because of the way I've seen it trained before and the way I've seen it trained today, people who have never touched a screwdriver can be trained to pass that exam. Yeah, I'm saying trained to pass, which is something I always try to never do. But companies and I went to I went to work with one company up in the up in the northeast and I went to see, I went, they asked me to, to work for them as a subcontractor to deliver the 18th edition training. And they asked me to come and see their principal and their principal instructor. And I went on the second day at about 11 o'clock. Now, the qualification is supposed to be about 34 hours or so, and then a couple of hours for assessment preparation and delivery, which really pushes into five days mm. if it's done properly. But it's been pulled back to four but now it's been pulled back to three because what companies do is they squeeze it down to fewer days because then they can charge less and then customers will use their product because it means the guys are off of work for a shorter period of time. But if you're going to sacrifice that time to train, what you're going to do instead is focus on the exam. Now, the course should have nothing to do with the exam. When you're being delivered an, ex an 80th edition course, that should have nothing to do with mentions of an exam. I, we had a, we had um, on the E5 group, we had a, a recent podcast with Kirsty from Surge, and she said she went to do a one day and then there was no content to cover the new introduction of over voltage protected devices in 444. And she asked the trainer and he said, yeah, but it doesn't come up in the exam. You know, and you kind of think that's the agenda of training organizations is we will focus on what's in the exam. You know, yeah. No, and that's why it's that's why it's broken. Yeah, it was one of the reasons why I didn't participate in a course and I, I just ended up yeah. doing my, my own revision <clears throat> alongside your videos. Mm. And so I, I saw this. I saw this from multiple directions. I saw the GIB saying, if you get that card, you'll then get registered. But then so that what I knew that would mean is all electricians are going to be bottlenecked that they must do the qualification. Yeah, the industry was saying to all electricians, you need it. That annoyed me. Because you only need it if you actually feel yourself that you need it. I mean, you can open up a book and bloody well read it. Yeah. I would never say you must do an 18th edition, but the industry did. The registered electrician basically meant that. So I knew straight away, I was sat there, I was going, right. So the GIB are going to send all electricians to go on to the 18th edition course. Great. I then looked across and said, right. 
And this course is being delivered in a couple of days, three days, and they're trained to pass an exam. So the whole subject of the 18th edition is going to make the training industry a ton of money. And the electricians are going to lose money and gain no value. That's all I saw. They're going to be forced by the JIB to take time off of work. They're going to be forced by the JIB to give the training industry money. But the training industry is so bad that the courses will be delivered in a way that does not give them enough education to then allow them to use BS7671. And I see it still. I'll see guys go, all right, I've done this. I'll put this on eBay now. You know, if you've been delivered a proper 18th edition course, this course, this book becomes an absolutely essential tool as you move forward, as you progress, and you'll use it a lot. It should be fully involved in inspection and testing, periodics and initial verification, because it's to this book. But people don't have that relationship to this book because we're all focusing on an exam and passing it. And I, I just over 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 a beer and a, and a meal one night with these five boys and our in our meeting encourage us and I, I just sat across the table and I went training training because at the time we were focusing on all sorts of areas of industry and I was just sat in the corner going it's training it's training problems training and they started to look and they, and they said what can we do I said well I could put an 80th edition course for free mm. and we're kind of like we're, and then I don't know I spent a couple of weeks doing it in the nights and then one day I just did it because it was needed, I felt. I felt that electricians would need to go on to it so they could do this in their own time. Then they can do, do an exam. And I felt training companies now need to see that somebody is actually going to expose their training. So they've got to then pull their trousers up and do a better job. Mm. I'm not going to say my training is the best. To be honest, I would have, I'm going to redo it sooner or later because I train differently now because I've learned more. I've spent time with the right people um kirsty from surge you know she's taught me a lot just in the past couple of weeks about spds it makes me really want want to redo the content i covered in that course um people need to want to learn um unfortunately yeah you know the the way the the way the attitude that we have as electricians is it's another bloody book it's another expense we're making someone else a load of money what does this give me where is their value for me um and that's why i've also set that's why i also set up the facebook groups um, to try to give those who wanted to work a bit harder, wanted to start to get recognized by applying themselves, they could start to find a place where they could identify each other and start to actually network and support each other to learn more. Mm. I've got a Discord server and I've got the likes of John Ward in there. I've got Paul Skirm in there. I've got Sean. I've got a couple of others. And, no, and there's, there's Richard Avery. And, There'll be nights where there's my, my alerts going, dun, 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 dun. I think, oh, is that all for me? And I'll go there. And there's about seven or eight people talking about stuff. And I'm actually learning because mm. I have no idea what they're talking about. But they explain it in a way that makes me learn. And that's the point. If you surround yourself with people that actually inspire you and you learn from, then you're just going to get better and you're going to stay sharp. Um, so back to your point as to why I did it for free or why I put it on there. It was I. It, a lot of money was about to be made. I couldn't stop that. But what I could do was offer electricians the opportunity to have the information delivered in what, in my view at the time, was properly. Because uh, the industry was going to shove them on training and companies were going to make money. I couldn't, I couldn't stop that. But what I could do was put in something in the middle that would allow them to gain that information and also the training industry just to expose them so hopefully some of them 
will actually feed off and try harder because if they have a learner come to deliver an 18th with them they can then say well that guy on the internet actually covered this section covered this section he did it in fewer hours than we're doing it in uh, you know, just to give them a bit of a voice, because a lot, as I said, a lot of train, a lot of learners, when they go onto courses, their only focus is the dreaded exam at the end. Yeah. So when I deliver the course in the classroom, the first thing I do is I hold up BS seven six seven one, and I turn to a page. I've got it in my hand, so I'll just say the page number. So if anyone's listening, they can check this out themselves. I turn. The first thing I ever do is turn to page two hundred and thirty eight which is where part six stops and part seven is about to begin. And I let them look at the book overall and they can see that they're not even halfway through the book. And I say to them, right, we're going to spend the first couple of days, maybe even up to the beginning of the third day or the fourth day. This is why I like Electrical Safety UK, because they do it in four days. They try their best to do it in four days. We're going to do our best to get there by the beginning of that day which means the other half of the book or more than half the book we're actually not going to get to, but we're going to cover in reference along that journey. And the reason I say that is because otherwise what happens is halfway through the day, they'll go, crikey, we've only got to this far. Or they'll then go at the end of the first day, they'll go, hang on one day and we've only got to about page 50. And they start to pressure themselves and get stressed. Um, But I never say exam. I never focus on the exam except for the very beginning because they want me to they need me to and that's mainly to tell them to chill Mm. and to actually think about what we're talking about and not think about an exam and i never mention the index yep i never mention the index because what good is that Mm. yeah um if anyone brings up the mention of the index in training i go well that's plan b yeah you've got a plan b but plan a is to know your shit yeah (laughs) and get this stuff done um so yeah that is that is why that is why um i put it out for free it was mainly because electricians were about to be forced to do the course and i knew the courses were going to be rubbish um a course where you pass the exam does not mean the course was good yeah yeah no, that that is something that is something i think a lot of us are starting to agree I and mean, we've seen people on twitter even with the 2391 now you know in the way it is uh, i had a chat with this with my dad just just last week because uh, he delivered the old 2391 like me. He's delivered the new 2391. And, I mean, there's a written exam in the new 2391, six questions, but those r- questions are pre-written. They've been – they're on the walled garden with sitting gills. I have them here on my monitor. Right. So I know the six questions that will be written in the 2391 that I'm about to deliver my learners. So I already know the areas to focus on mm. to make sure they've got a good, te- good, a good um, chance of passing. Yeah. Yeah. And the only other technical part is a multiple choice exam open book. So we've gone from that closed book, written paper that's been sent in a grey envelope, which we don't see until the time of the exam, which is then externally marked to now pre-written six questions, which I know about and I can guide my direction of training toward and an online multiple choice open book exam from Guidance Notes 3. You know, they'll say it's the same, but it's not the same. No, it's just it's just not the same um and yeah so these are the bigger challenges with training is trying to get the awarding bodies to actually look at the qualifications themselves um because yeah passing assessments passing exams is very easy we have a high rotation high turnover means training companies make a lot of money means awarding bodies make a lot of money because every single person needs registration 
but we need to look at the outputs of this training. And the outputs of this training is showing that a lot of people are not actually developing with this. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I quite agree. Um, what do you enjoy most about the electrical industry? And you, I, I can caveat that for yourself and say training as well. OK, um, well, it probably would have been training anyway. I think what I like most, especially now, is innovation. I was brought up with the idea that, you know, screw connection terminals, crimp connections for permanent connections, uh, heat shrunk. But we're seeing new innovations, new technologies, new connections. I, I love it because I'm le- I like to learn. I like to I like to realize one day I'll go on Instagram and there'll be uh, one of the one of the Instagrammers I love like Louise etc and she'll be showing some switches or she'll be over over in the Netherlands doing some CPD an event on the smart tech industry and I'll be like crikey I have no idea what I'm looking at yeah. uh, and I like that I like the fact that it's moving fast it does obviously create an issue with training though and I, I've said this a number of times in other podcasts where FE you know which is you know, FE updated a few years ago where they brought in environmental legislation where we started talking about solar, ground solar, uh, wind farm. But it needs to move a lot more rapidly to allow electricians to access modern technology. We need some of this modern technology to come into the FE space. So when the guys are in the workshops, instead of screw terminal light switches and connector blocks, they have the chance of using Virgos or or wire free switches, kinetic switches or whatever. So what I love about the industry is the way innovations and technology moves along. I obviously can't stand the way it's I mean, it's not regulated, but we think it is. Mm. There are huge issues there. Um, so I can't I can't stand that. But I love the way it moves along. I love the way it's always trying to. You know, it's, it's basically racing. It's in a race with itself. It's always trying to be moving along. Training is not keeping up with it. And that's why a lot of times the manufacturers are providing the best training for you. You know, even with things like fire. I mean, the fire qualifications are being re-reviewed right now and restructured. Because, you know, your companies like ICO that are just always giving free training out, uh, which is great. And their technology is always moving along. Mm-hmm. So, what, what excites me the most about the industry is probably yeah it, it it's the innovations the way things move along and with the training it's the need to keep the training with it so is there any technology that you are aware of that you'd like to see introduced introduced in where well within the industry um something that you've you've noticed might have a, a good application um maybe whether that's testing or whether it's a, an electrician on the ground with a particular application well i know that i know that we're going down to this space now of um you know reporting and certification and software um i know ryan's got his software which is you know he people claim their software does the same thing his i said to him in a podcast or in a voice chat just a few um yesterday or the other day uh his his in his his software is probably three years ahead of the industry um we are going to get to that point where we're going to try to automate as much of this as we can. Uh, we can see, I mean, like um, there are uh, Schneider have a range of of devices that go onto your into your boards that can then communicate with you to tell you about loads and demands and things like that. Um, again, it goes back to training, it goes back to education. I think I think if if the if the manufacturers can get into the space of every electrician instead of the people that take it on as a niche then I can see I can see us all moving quite steadily forward. 
Um, with regards to a specific product or technology or direction, um, well, my, I have I, something that I do think about, which is probably a, lot, a slight deviation, is because I do thermal imaging. Um, the thermal imaging space is gradually being tapped onto by electricians, but they're obviously trying to get into it at the low price point. So they're taking cameras and they're taking them onto sites. Um, but I think they know that there is an area of learning to take place and they need to probably change the camera if they're going to do something that's a really detailed survey. Mm. So when you look at thermal imaging cameras, you've got a resolution and, you know, you can buy one at the very low end, um, like the ones that go onto your phone. And you could buy a very high end one. So the question would be, what's the difference? So the application of thermal imaging cameras, I'd like to see more effectively controlled. Uh, if you've got a camera that goes onto your phone and you've got it as a as a maybe, that's a perfect device if you're going to do what we call qualitative assessment in the thermal imaging world, which basically means I'm looking at the image. Is it hot or cold? Yeah. Um, so if I want to see if conductors are balanced, and I can see the colors to determine that that's perfect. If we're going to start to try to obtain quantitative, we're then going to need to have higher resolution so that the pixels are smaller. So we can then start taking accurate measurements between those positions. But this is when you're going to start spending multiple thousands of pounds, um, you know, probably somewhere from four thousand at least. So it's a different area. It's a different space. Um, but I'd like to see I'd like to see more thermal imaging technology coming into the electrician's toolbox. I'd like to see thermal imaging brought more into Gyosynology because it is a great tool, a great diagnostic tool. Um, adding to that, however, what I think we are missing is awareness of how to properly control live work risk. Mm. You know, a lot of people are saying live work equals no, we don't live work, you just don't do live work. And we go, oh, okay, but then electricians will go off and do what is life work. But it's a case of understanding what is or is not life work. So they'll go and they'll start to manipulate energized conductors. Or they'll take off a, a panel, but not get in there, but they'll take off a panel removing the barriers. Mm. Um, I think I think I think we did, I think I brought this up in the podcast you did over on the five group where I talked about um, arc flash and NFPA 70E and the need to select PPE with arc flash calories and stuff. This is an area that I think over the next few years we're going to start to see a lot more um, men, uh, a lot more adopted, mentioned, controlled, and then put into practice. Yeah, um, I think that's obviously something we've done quite a bit of in the in the water. In the water. Yeah. yeah um particularly obviously with the control panels obviously they're typically form four so they don't have the door interlocked isolators and bits and pieces so you can manipulate the the incoming main switch um mm. whether that's through with grips or whatever um and obviously the amount of energy that's actually happening in there and you're actually physically in the panel um so the way we've ended up getting around that sort of solution now is to ensure that they're all door interlocked and almost coming back to the form two arrangements of panels mm. well, that's the thing though isn't it it's a case it's a case of being able to identify that risk um i think when it's in environments where it's more industrious or it's more readily done i think people have been now informed through just gradual evolution but there are many take take for example uh, a switch room in a school you know, you'll get your you'll get your average typical competent person registered spark will go into doing the ICR and he'll go to the load center and he'll take the panel off to do his EICR data collection. But if he then, you know, if there's a risk of arc flash or anything in that, then that panel removal point should have been assessed for because 
and this when I do art flash training, I try to say to people, you know, have you ever put in a cable into a board and the bending radius has been a bit tight? Maybe it's been a bit busy in there. And what you've done is as you've pushed the panel back, the panel has been trying to spring back against you. But that's OK, because once you get that screw started, you can then relax your arms. You can allow the screw to take the pressure and actually put the lid back. Mm. Yeah. Now, I'm pretty sure that many electricians would go, yeah, I may have done that once or twice, where they've allowed the machining of the screw to then just mechanically take the lid back into the enclosure. Yeah. That means that under load, those con- those, you know, that there's constant tension and pressure there. Now, if someone later on comes whilst this is energized and undoes those screws and takes that lid off, that could potentially create movement of energized cables, which could, if there's vibration there, result in loose connections which could create a risk of an arc flash right. something as simple as removing a panel this is an area that we are not approaching sufficiently in what i would say would be the typical low voltage electrician right. yeah the typical commercial electrician if you go to an industrious electrician i'm sure they've had more learning if you've done authorized engineer high voltage you'd have covered this area um but for the typical low voltage spark, it probably you know the risk of incident energy, quantifying incident energy, yeah, and then fundamentally selecting suitable control provisions like PPE or you know process of work, mm. you know is um it, you know it, it can only be considered and assessed properly if they are properly informed of those risks. And I don't think they are yet. Is it something you think potentially manufacturers could do more to assist with? It is. And I've been looking at some of the manufacturers to do this because I've been looking at things like, you know, Iris that makes thermal imaging windows and Eaton. And some of these companies do have great technology that actually, um, in the case like an arc flash, would actually quench and actually take that energy away. So they're devising things like technologies to try to assist with the problem instead of just awareness of the problem. But I mean, if you go to a manufacturer that is also American, so like take Fluke, for example, which we have, we have Fluke in the UK. If you look at Fluke and you look at their resources, you'll find they talk about ArcFlash because they're in the U.S. space. They're in the, you know, they're over in the States. So they have all of that literature and all of that medium already prepared. Um, We go to Europe and we still have some mention about considering it, but we still rely too much on the um, the removal, you know, the elimination of that with the work. And if you then say to an electrician, oh, there's a risk of arc flash, so eliminate it. So you must switch off the main switch before you take the panel off to do your ZE or your PFC or your ZS and PFC tests and your IR and your your you know your testing. They're probably going to go no, you know, because it's going to be limitations. So it's it's again, this is where I this is I look at a company. I look at companies doing a periodic inspection, EICR, and I'll see the company and I'll, I'll this is what I do with consulting. I go well, okay, show me the system of work. And I look at the system of work, I go, well, they've not approached how they're controlling or identifying that risk or this risk or that risk. And that's something that, you know, it just falls into a generic process, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, similar to things like uh, IR testing, you know, they'll go, oh, well, you know, because in 2391, we go, OK, we have dead tests and live tests. But we say that in, in that the system is dead or the system is live. So an installation resistance test is a dead test because the system is dead. But the work itself could because must be considered as live work because you're using a source of energy in your instrument which is 500 volts dc which is over the 120 volts dc barrier so it's lv work you know 
you ask people who have been megged before, you'll say to them, what was your response to being megged? You go, well, yeah, we all had a involuntary response. I go, well, there you go. You're not going to be killed by the mega test. But if you're up access equipment using machinery and you have an involuntary response, suddenly this is live work. And these are the areas that I see. So what I'd like to see brought in more is much more awareness of how to properly control this you know, systems of work, live work kind of processes. A lot of it, unfortunately, is copy paste templates. Yeah. You know, I've done work where I've gone to a site, to a school, and it's a CDM. You know, it's a, it's, it's a construction site because there's uh, some HVAC work being done, and apparently, magically, my RAMs have been sent to them whilst I'm in the van on the way. You know, they're just magically going there. Bear in mind that nobody has ever been on site, assess risk on site, or anything, but the office has sent a RAM. Yeah, no, yeah. I've I've encountered many uh, generic RAMs, and yeah, had, unfortunately had arguments with companies on that basis of no one's been here yet. Yeah, but it slows down the work, you know, it slows down the work, and there's no reason why. If again, I mentioned HSR25, HSG, HSG85, that's great material to document and create a system of work. You know, what's the element of risk? What's your control methods? And you know, it's not hard to do, and in training in FE in particular. It's part of the health and safety bit done at the very beginning with all the manual handling. And unfortunately, for a lot of people, it's just there as completeness. It's not there as an essential part. And I think I think that any electrician doing an apprenticeship right at the end of the apprenticeship should be given the task. I mean, you know, they have like a little design project that they do. Yeah. I think they should also be tasked with completion of documentation like a RAM risk assessment method statement um, relative to a specific project scenario that's been debriefed. There has to be something that actually allows electricians to properly control this documentation. Because what's happening now is software manufacturers and producers of generic nonsense are making money and they're actually giving no, they're not really accepting any liability and the electricians are taking it. Um, and, you know, I've known a few occasions where work has slowed down, work has been stopped or even, you know, contracts lost because of a simple mediocre document yeah i think that's probably about all we have time for um most like most likely yeah <laughs> so, you know i really appreciate you coming on and um it's no, been a great fine. chat and hopefully maybe we can even do it again sometime um I'm, sh- I'm sure we will i'm sure we will there's one final question though what is your favorite movie oh uh judgment night judgment night i haven't heard of that one Mm, Judgment Night. It's a movie from the 90s. It's got Emilio Estevez in it and Cuba Gooding Jr. in it and a couple of others. And Dennis Leary is the bad guy. And it's all about some lads going to go watch a boxing match in the middle of the night. They go in this in this weird um, hum, uh, this weird kind of um, leisure vehicle kind of thing. And they go, they go, end up into the wrong end of town. I don't even know what town it was. Maybe it's like some kind of rough town or Detroit. They end up getting lost. They get stuck in this town, and it's kind of like, um, you know, there's no one about. It's an abandoned town, uh, and there are some guys just kicking ass. And one of the guys kills another guy. These guys see it, and basically the film is them being chased through a city by a gang trying to kill him. Oh, okay. I like I like I like stuff like that because you know just keep on your feet keep running around it's just something I've always liked I mean there are many other movies uh, that are good they're blockbusters and things but because that one isn't known by many it's one that I quite like cool yeah it's very rarely on it's called Judgment Night yeah I will try and find it if I can um, right, and give that a watch so thank you very much for your time today and right. thank you everyone for listening.